You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Business Journal podcast, where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. Scott Case is a technologist, inventor, and entrepreneur. He's well known as the founding CTO of Priceline.com. And he's also the co-founder and CEO of Upside.com, where Scott is reinventing business travel through new software and systems that simplify a complex supply chain into a smooth and rewarding experience. Scott joins me on the podcast for a warm-up chat to his keynote speaking presentation in the upcoming EntreFest virtual conference. I talk to Scott about his start as an entrepreneur, the keys to authentic business relationships, and the human behaviors that shape business and the economy. Also, Scott shares his insights on the challenges and solutions to maintaining and accelerating your business during a pandemic. I learned a lot, and I know you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time. I know all of us here in the Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area are super excited to have you come and join us as the keynote speaker at EntreFest, which is really the uh, the quintessential uh, business startup entrepreneurship event here in Eastern Iowa. Um, super excited to have you, and thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, and I'm uh, I'm bummed I don't get to go to Cedar Rapids for realsies, but uh, I'll get out there once we're all allowed to travel again. <laughs> yeah, I know. We're uh, it's definitely definitely different times, but um, I, I was hoping you could first just sort of dive into a bit more about your background story. We all know. Um, about your success as the, as the CTO and, and founder at Priceline and your current success as a founder at, uh, at Upside. Um, but, I'll, you know, could you take us back to the beginning, chat a bit about your, your upbringing, uh, maybe a first brush with entrepreneurship and how you, uh, you know, how you got started? How much time do we have for this podcast? I turned 50 this year. Um, so I, how far back do you want to go? I'll touch on some things and you could dive deeper on stuff. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right. Well, I, uh, like I said, I just turned 50 and uh, I've had pretty much been an entrepreneur my entire life, as long as I can remember. Um, Managed to drag around my dad's lawnmower to cut people's grass in my neighborhood as a way of making a buck when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Um, I really despise cutting grass ever since then. And and I have (laughs) have not cut grass since then. I, I basically said, I ain't doing this again. But I, I started off thinking as an entrepreneur, and I was uh, lucky to be exposed to computers very early in my um, in my life with my father, who worked for a, a now long gone company called Control Data Corporation. Okay. And uh, so I had access to computers, which meant I could learn how to code on my own, and uh, I really got addicted to it. And so when I think of my own entrepreneurial journey, it started as an entrepreneur, and. Uh, my skill set, the thing I got most excited about was around using computers and technology, particularly information technology. Sure. Even though I did a bunch of weird stuff and won science fairs and things, my my interest was always using my imagination to create things from a, a, an information technology standpoint. Um, 
did a bunch of stuff when I was in high school, started a little consulting business um, where I helped lawyers figure out how to use this new thing called the Ethernet, which allowed you to not use floppy disks to transfer information. They thought I was some kind of a wizard. Um, I was just installing some basic cards in their computers and connecting some wires together, but they thought it was magic. Um, went to college and uh, studied computer science, got an engineering degree. And throughout college, I did side projects. Um, I always had I always had two or three jobs going, including like regular jobs that got paid by the hour and project work. Sure. Uh, and in my junior year, I, I was approached by one of my college professors who was starting a software company. Uh, this was like 1991-ish. And uh, it was a flight simulator to run on a, on a personal computer. And it would, the whole mission was to teach pilots how to fly IFR, which is when you fly in the clouds. In instrument flight rules is what it's called. And so we had to write a flight simulator and then we wrote an AI, a rules-based AI engine that simulated what a flight instructor would do. It was a whole training course and it was, um, it was a fantastic product. It was on the market, it may still be, I, I haven't checked in a while, but it was on the market for almost 20 years. And we shipped the thing on six floppy disks. There was like a stack this big of three <laughs> and a half inch floppies, um, including all the voice and you put headsets on, it was insane for its time. Um, we built a fantastic product, but I learned one of my first entrepreneurial lessons at that company. It was called Precision Training Software. And that was just because you build a great product does not mean that people are going to show up and buy it. I call it the field of dreams problem. And if you're familiar with that movie, given where you are based, you know that well. it's probably not your first time. But, you know, if you build it, they will come is bullshit. You actually have to think through how do you go to market. And so my whole point was to learn about, you know, how that would play out. And, um, and when I left uh, that business, it was in a fantastic shape, but its big challenge was uh, from, a, from a, a marketing standpoint, we had to figure out how to sell. Sure. And, uh, and I learned how to sell on the phone and it was one of the most valuable lessons. And in fact, if people don't take anything else away from this podcast, spend six months selling over the phone as an entrepreneur. <laughs> I'm telling you, it will shape the way that you pitch, the way that you think about things, the way that you, the way that you smile on the phone because smiling is what it bleeds through to your call, how to have a good attitude. Uh, I keep a mirror on my desk still to this day uh, to know that it's how I show up and how I look is going to help me make that sale. That's and awesome. at the end of the day, we're selling all day long, no matter what we're doing, whether it's to keep our employees fired up or it's to uh, bring a new customer in or to find a new partner um, or to find that first co-founder of yours. So... I learned a lot from that experience, but I also learned that I didn't know much. I mean, I had to I listen to every book on tape I could. I read every book in the library. I, there was no internet at the time, so I had to do everything on my own. And that set me off a journey that uh, really has been the, the, the trajectory of the rest of my life. Uh, I got introduced to uh, Jay, who was starting Walker Digital in the mid-90s. And he was a marketer, and he understood how to use information technology. And he was starting something called Walker Digital. I was the fourth employee there. And Jay's insight was, hey, this internet thing is going to be a big deal, which sounds like ridiculous right now. But in the mid-90s, it was unclear. You still had dial-up on AOL, blah, blah, blah. Um, but his second insight was that there would be whole new business models that would get created through that. And why, did, why don't we spend our time and energy inventing what the future of new business models might look like uh, that were enabled by the internet? And so Walker, that was Walker Digital's mission. We spent a year inventing all kinds of things, many of which have come to fruition at this point. The biggest, though, and most successful was the basis for what became Priceline.com. And um, the, the idea was quite simple, but the execution is everything. 
and uh, our timing was really good. The internet was growing. There weren't a lot of things that you could do on the internet from a commerce standpoint. And we had to invent all the technology from the ground up because nobody had done anything like it before. In particular, right. naming your own price flipped the inventory equation so the customer was in charge of what they wanted and now you had to match that up. So not only were we early on the internet, but we were early in understanding how to really change the dynamics of e-commerce. And so that experience going through, you know, we launched the company in I think spring of 1998, we went public a year later um, and we crossed a billion dollar sales threshold a year after that. Um, so it was hyper speed. We launched six or eight products in that time period across the board, and then the dot-com bubble burst. And um, I learned one of the other lessons, which is uh, it's really fun on the ride up, not so fun when you have to <laughs> basically let 450 people go and shut down, I don't remember how many, three or four different business lines. Mm -hmm. um, and that was humbling. You know, you think that you're on a rocket ship and that you, nothing can stop you, and then the world changes. And, um, you know, we're in the middle of that right now with the pandemic, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So that... That early shaping, you know, through about 2001, I was about 31, um, really changed the way I thought about things. I rode this ride up. I used technology to do amazing things inside upside, excuse me, inside Priceline that I've actually applied to Upside now. And, um, and it left me thinking, okay, what do I want to do with the rest of my, uh, with my life? And at 31, you don't really know. I had three kids, a fourth one on the way, um, and started to think about, well, maybe I should take a stint at doing something what we call now being a social entrepreneur. Sure. And um, started a, a nonprofit that was, we'd call now a software as a service business for other nonprofits. Uh, merged that with a company that I'm still the chairman of called Network for Good. Um, we have a SaaS software that helps tens of thousands of, of uh, small charities uh, use the internet for fundraising and communications and donor management. Uh, and then we partner with giant organizations like Facebook and Google and others to uh, to connect donors to those organizations. So far, we've raised about three and a half billion dollars or so for about 250,000 different small charities across the country. And that was a scaling, really a donation platform to begin with. So got to do that for a few years. I then uh, got asked by a friend to help uh, work on a global health issue called malaria. Uh, we launched an organization called Malaria No More. I was the CEO of it for five years, and I was on the board for another five years. Uh, so I got an upfront seat at, a, at really a, running a global operation uh, and specifically understanding how global health operates. And I learned, I learned a lot. It was less about applying technology and more about being an entrepreneur. And so that experience taught me a lot of things about how to create relationships and how to create true partnerships. Uh, and, uh, and what you can do when you apply kind of entrepreneurial thinking to big global problems. Uh, at the time that I started at Malaria No More, 1.2 million people were dying a year. That's now down to about 400,000. It's still 400,000 too many. Uh, and when you compare it to what's happening with the coronavirus pandemic, um, we're just sort of approaching that number now as it relates to a new disease. Um, and in Sub-Saharan Africa, malaria still is a, a dominant issue. But Malaria No More taught me a lot about, about kind of global health. Network for Good taught me about you know, how you scale in that market. But I was itching as I learned more about the, the nonprofit world that I realized that applying for-profit capabilities was going to be important. In fact, it was so important that we actually took Network for Good, which was a nonprofit, and we spun out a for-profit and raised capital against it so that we could scale it. Interesting. And that got me thinking more about entrepreneurship much more directly and much more actively. We survived the, the 2008 financial crisis 
and I was asked by um, Steve Case's foundation, the Case Foundation, actually Steve and Gene, uh, the Case Foundation in DC, not related to me, um, the Kaufman Foundation out of Kansas City, which I'm sure you're familiar with, mm -hmm. and then the Obama administration to lead something called Startup America, which um, I got the chance to travel around the entire country and meet with some of the greatest entrepreneurs in places like Des Moines, Iowa, and Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, Denver, Colorado, and Dallas, Texas, and dozens of others, where our mission was to raise up uh, entrepreneurship and particularly high growth startups in those markets and engage the successful founders who had built successful companies in those places to participate in leading the charge around um, really building a stronger startup ecosystem. And the core insight that Kaufman had was that companies less than five years old are the ones that are the net job creators and especially those that grow. So as we start to think about going into this next recession uh, and starting to recover from it, startups are going to be absolutely critical to that storyline. And in this one, because the small businesses have been de uh, decimated at this point, it's going to be even more important that we figure out strategies for entrepreneurs across the whole spectrum, not just startups. So that Startup America brought me to Washington, D.C. I spent three years. It was a three-year project. We were very successful in starting up a lot of ecosystems, learning a lot, and, and bringing together a network, which is now called the Startup Champions Network, of leaders across all these places. I then found myself saying, well, it's time to start a company again. Mm -hmm. I started a, a business called Main Street Genome. It's, uh, it was in the small business space, uh, specifically around using data and information to make uh, small businesses more effective and, and, and frankly, more profitable. Um, the business didn't go the way we wanted it to. Uh, we learned a lot from it, uh, and, it, and we ended up selling the technology. The technology is still in use today, uh, but it, it learned a lot of lessons. And the, the biggest lesson that we learned was that small business owners play a critical role in leading their organizations. And uh, while we could figure out ways to deliver profit opportunities for them, it was very hard for them to get their heads wrapped around always being able to implement them, right. partly because of being busy and partly because they, um, they, they sort of pride themselves on that ownership of organizing the company. So that left me in a place where I started thinking about what I want to do next. Most founders at my stage of life have a bunch of other founders that they've interacted with before. And I had stayed in touch with uh, Jay, who, who was still leading Walker Digital and was starting some interesting things. And I found myself on the phone with him and another friend of mine named John Ellenthal. And the three of us decided to start Upside Business Travel uh, about four, year, four and a half years ago. Uh, and we basically had the idea that we were all small business owners and travelers ourselves. You know, while Jay and John and I had all created big companies, we'd all started with tiny little, like there's four of us, right. right? And we booked our own travel and we dealt with the shit show that was travel along those lines. And we said, well, we could do better, right? We have mobile technology now, we've got the cloud, we've got all kinds of information data that can, that can change the trajectory of a trip. How do we get to a place where we can give a better traveler experience uh, for business travelers. And our experience at Priceline taught us that there are ways that if we positioned the way we went to market and the way that we positioned the product to business travelers, we could work with suppliers in a way that they would benefit from, the traveler would benefit from, and their employers would benefit. And so we're now upside business travel. We've, we've been in market for a couple of years. We sell directly to small and medium-sized businesses. We offer a one-stop shop of a travel solution. Uh, and um, it's totally free to use everything in one place. 
employer gets a lot of data about where their employees are, which is really critical right now as we go into this pandemic and post-pandemic time, uh, and we give a picture to the whole company, the individual traveler gets a much, much better overall experience because uh, we basically take really good care of them their entire trip. Uh, we have mobile apps that track everything and, uh, and nobody pays any more than what you would if you bought directly from the airlines or the hotels. That said, um, you might have noticed there's a pandemic right now. <laughs> I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but it's like May of 2020 and it's been like a shitstorm in the world. Yes. Um, so travel is down like 92% right now. And so um, it's been an interesting experience for us because we've had to really retool and rethink who we are. How many employees are you guys at now at Upside? We have about 100 okay. uh, on the team across uh, probably like two thirds are product engineering, design, and um, uh, data science. And then we have a, a, a marketing and sales organization, uh, as well as a kind of a lot of support capabilities across the board uh, to keep us all running smoothly. Sure. And it seems like if you go back all the way to the mid 90s at, at Walker Digital, kind of a common thread through your career is the importance of, of business partnerships, both with people that you're founding companies with, but also the importance of collaboration and that sort of community, that entrepreneurial ecosystem. Could you touch on a few sort of what you would call kind of key principles with the that make a successful partnership and then maybe elaborate that into like, you know, a broader community like in Iowa City, Cedar Rapids? You know, what, what's important for a community to have to make to help foster entrepreneurship? Look, the most important thing is to develop authentic relationships. And my experience has been that every relationship you you create is a valuable one. And oftentimes it's incredibly difficult to predict which ones are gonna turn out to be valuable and which ones are gonna be ones that you may never follow up with or they right. may never follow up with you. But treat each one as it's, uh, as, a, as an authentic relationship. And my own strategy is, uh, and, it's, and it's something I developed over a, over a long period of time, was to be in service to others and so my first interaction with somebody is often to learn enough about them where I can figure out how to make a connection on their behalf of some kind, right? Now, maybe that's a, a loose connection. Hey, have you heard of this person who's doing this thing? Um, I talk to lots of entrepreneurs, so I end up seeing uh, common idea patterns. And so oftentimes I can say, wow, I met this person over here who's doing something similar to you. Would you like to meet them? I'm happy to make an introduction to you. That part of it is really important and it bleeds into the business partnership side as well. At the end of the day, you've got to have a relationship with the person that you're going to do business with. And the more authentic and the more real it is, the more valuable that relationship would be. Even if you don't end up doing business now, the world's incredibly small and the business world, especially at a at an executive level is even smaller. And so while that person might be at a company that you're not gonna work with now, they may go to another company five years from now, and that one is the one you have a relationship for. Sure. And so it's just important to recognize that the world's hyper-connected in ways that are unpredictable and, and frankly difficult to track. And so if you just sort of treat it karmically, you know, from a karma standpoint, yeah. keep putting good vibes out there, do what you can to be of service to others, you'll be shocked at how much that stuff comes back around again from a business principle standpoint. And my own take on, on professional partnerships is, you know, my job is to deliver, to deliver more value than my partner expects, right? So I think of it through that lens. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are hard-nosed negotiators who want to wring the last nickel out of every deal. My view is, is that great partnerships will evolve in ways that will create new opportunities for everybody. And that, if you try to squeeze every nickel out of it, you almost create negative 
almost bad will, the opposite of goodwill yeah, in the relationship. Point. Sure. And I also think that treat the negotiation and the relationship as a working relationship as if you're already working together. Don't sort of say, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the deal done and then I'll fix it later. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's basically, hey, this is, this is just a continuum. The closing process is just a point in time. So treat it as if you're working together the whole way. You'll learn a lot about how your partner actually operates if you partner in that way from the get-go. And then lastly, when you're creating relationships in a startup ecosystem, it's the same game and it is the greatest weakness for most, uh, for most startup ecosystems, frankly, outside of New York and the Bay Area. And that is, is that the value of the collisions between people is what makes the opportunities. And so creating relationships, not just for yourself, but actually creating those connections in the case of geographically or in the case of being in a common industry or sector or, or going after the same kind of segment, your job is to create those connections. People will connect, will create them for you, but your job is to also create them for others. And that information and sort of connection density is the, the biggest driver of success. And so as an individual entrepreneur, you need to do whatever it takes to build a network of relationships around you that are power fans of you and what you're trying to accomplish. Because the reality is, is that whatever idea you have to solve whatever problem you have, if the problem is good enough, you'll have 30 different ideas you'll have to go through to actually solve the problem. And so what you want is people to believe in who you are and you and therefore want to believe in them. And it sort of becomes a virtuous circle. But you really need to invest in building those relationships. And so many entrepreneurs get heads down and get in their own spaces. You've got to allocate time to that relationship development and building, sharing your ideas with people, explaining what you're trying to work on um, and bringing them in to say, wow, I really want to help that person be successful at what they're doing. You do that and you, you won't have the challenges that a lot of startups do, which is, you know, raising capital, finding great employees, great, creating partnerships, creating customers. If you've created the relationship around it, that stuff just falls into place almost like magic. Yeah. You bring up a great point and, a, and I think a timely point. I'm curious to pick your brain on this. You know, the Richard Florida philosophy on collisions. How do you view connectivity and those sort of ad hoc relationships um, in a time like today when, when it's social distancing? How do you connect in a period when we're all supposed to be apart? I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, our, all of our hope here is that, you know, you know, before too long, we'll be back and we'll be out and about and having those sort of um, organic connections out there in the world. But I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on, on, uh, on connectivity right now during this time. So I think it's more important than ever to figure out how to be of service in a broadcast strategy. So in the case of, of creating content. So for example, we, we created Founders Focus, which is we basically launched it on LinkedIn and we've been using that as a mechanism to share our ideas and to share yeah. the values that we're creating and the opportunities that we see and bringing a bunch of people together as a mechanism for helping to create some of those collisions. And I'm not saying we've got it perfect, but it was something that became pretty clear to me about eight weeks ago that like, hey, we're going to need something here. And let me see if I can bring my network of relationships at least into a place where they can start colliding with each other. Um, and I think that I'll call it broadly content, is a great way to put stuff out in the world that can attract common interests. And so if you're looking to draw that, figuring out how to either write or create videos um, that 
talk about the things that you care about or that are important to you uh, it will help you attract others that could be of interest. I also think that we're in a time where, especially entrepreneur to entrepreneur, um, we need to support each other. And I think most entrepreneurs are willing to make time for someone. And, you know, and literally in the last, I don't know, three days, I've had two very seasoned entrepreneurs that are, you know, have been at least as successful, if not more successful than I have been, reach out to me to say, like, dude, I need some help. I'm, I'm working through a problem that I need somebody else. I need a clean space for. And I'm delighted to provide the capabilities that I can. I'm going to do everything I can to them. And I'm super busy, just like they're super busy. Right. But I also know that at some point down the line, I'm going to need something from somebody who shouldn't take my call. And they're going to take it anyway, because that's how the universe works. Yeah. And they're not even going to know why. But hopefully... When, when they take the call, it'll be worth their time. And, uh, and so I think that putting yourself out there and asking for support, you'll be surprised at how much you get it. And if you can be of support, you know, my philosophy is to say yes. And sometimes I get criticized. Well, you got to say no, you got to throw stuff overboard. Not when it comes to people and relationships. My attitude is if I can do something, my answer is yes. I'm not always sure that I'm going to be able to be helpful to you, but I'll spend 15 minutes with you to say, well, let's find out what I can do. And if I can do something, even if it's just advice, I'll give it to you. If it's, yeah, I have a relationship I could bring to the table if it's useful to you. Um, that's, that's about being of service to others. And, you know, it always pays off. It's not quid pro quo. It's not something that's like, well, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That's just not my style. I just sort of believe that if I do a lot of good for others, uh, good things are going to come back uh, yeah. for me in ways that I can't predict. Yep, that's a great, great life philosophy. I'm curious. That founders focus is such a great example of how to how to bring people together here during the during the pandemic. Have there been any sort of common threads or themes? If you could pick a couple of those out from the conversations that you've brought together on founders focus, that are you know timely during the pandemic. What are are there a couple challenges, a couple solutions that are really jumping out? during those conversations to you? Yeah, there's three things that I've, I've identified through this pandemic with companies that are interesting and basically three categories of company. So you got companies like Upside Business Travel, which got whacked, right? Immediately, two weeks later, we went from you know 100 to 90 to, to 95% down, yeah. right? In fact, we were growing, we were beating, every two days we were hitting a record in our company. I mean, it makes me crazy, okay? But but we, we ended up getting crushed, which was actually a gift. Because from my standpoint, those companies that, bam, they were done, now they knew what to do. At least they knew what their situation was. So that's one group. Mm -hmm. The second group are winners. That group's much, much smaller. Call it like 1%. The BAM group is probably 20%. The winner group is probably like 1%. Right. That 1%, their business just took off in ways that they either couldn't have predicted or if they had predicted it, it was still much greater. Yep. Much, much smaller group, but they have a whole different class of problems. I'll come back to that. And then the third group is the one that I'm most worried about. They're lagging. So you've got, bam, I got crushed 20%, 1% winning. Then you got the laggards. Yeah. Call that 79% to make the math work. <laughs> the big challenge with the laggards is, is that their business hasn't been impacted much. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm only down 20%, you know, in April. And I'm sitting there thinking, there's a recession coming. You're going to get crushed. Right. Like, how do you preserve capital? How do you figure out how to cut your costs? You know, what are the things you need to do to make this work? And so I'm most concerned about that latter group because they've sort of got their head in the sand and it's very hard to predict. I don't know what the future is going to be like. Maybe it'll be better. My advice to those groups is treat this as if you got whacked, okay? Or if you've got some way to turn this into a win, press in aggressively against it. But 
don't ignore the fact that, yeah, the pandemic part might not be hurting you, but the recession is coming and it's going to damage you. Now, there's all kinds of opportunity in crisis. Like, I'm super optimistic about what's on the other side of this whole thing, but you only get to the other side if you play the game right now correctly. You screw it up now, you don't get to keep playing. And so this is in that moment, you know, the winners are trying to figure out how to raise capital virtually. Like they've got all kinds of issues around that and they're, they're scaling. And so they've got to figure out how to hire employees remotely, et cetera. And the folks that got whacked, I've been living this for this with, for eight weeks now. So for me, I've already moved on. I'm already planning for 2021, mm -hmm. right? 2020 is over already. Like I got a plan. We're going to execute against it. Now it's about how are we going to win in 2021 and 2022? So but I, that's a gift. Like that's an opportunity. I have eight weeks to think about it. If you haven't thought about it yet, you're eight weeks behind. Yeah. Because every everybody who has is going to be ahead of you, whether it's in your market, in the segment, in the world, right? And that's the game. So those are the patterns that I've seen in terms of, you know, I would ask anybody who's listening to this podcast, where are you at in that? And what are you doing about it? The other pattern that I've seen that on the positive side, that the companies that get it, as I said, they're thinking ahead. They're trying to plan for the future and what it is going to likely be like for their business and start making decisions now for that future, right? What does it mean in 2021, 2022? Um, what is your prediction or your best guess for your industry about how the recession and the recovery happens? There's a lot of X factors in travel, for example. You know, airlines are going to have less supply. They're going to have fewer seats per flight. That might raise prices. That might create weird demand profiles. Hotels, which ones come back? Which ones don't come back? Does that increase prices or decrease prices? All of those things are unknown. And the other key thing about the 2021 future is don't be looking at 2019 to think that that's how it's going to be in the future. Right. It ain't looking like 2019 anymore. Throw all that shit out. All that data you had, everything else, you got to start over and start talking to customers again. What do they think? How are they planning? What are their hopes, dreams, fears, concerns? And you got to do it regularly because the new information continues to come in and it's going to change their mind about things. So the game here is start looking after the future and start researching and understanding the customer behavior side. And when I say customer, it could be anyway. It could be an employee at a large enterprise company that's got a, is your buyer at the end of the day. It could be an individual who might be a direct-to-consumer business. Everything is going to get turned upside down. Even if it's not turned upside down right now, you've got to plan as if it is yeah. and start to predict what might happen and then be making decisions today based on that. That, that P word is something I've noticed the last 60 days during the pandemic, which is, which is prediction. I think I feel like everyone is, you know, all the conversations I've had with other business owners and entrepreneurs, it's all around, you know, what is this going to mean to the, to the hotel industry? What's this mean to the restaurant industry? What's this going to mean to the construction industry, airlines, all those sort of things. Do you have any, um, it can be macro prediction. It can be, you know, more industry specific. Are there a couple like, you know, key predictions that you're going to, you know, stake your claim to right now on how the, the business world has, is going to change and whether it be 20, 2021 or 2022? Yeah, my key predictions are that I'm going to be 100% wrong. I just don't <laughs> know which parts are going to be wrong and um, don't make any decisions based on my predictions. So let me qualify it there. Now, that said, yeah. uh, look... I've been through a bunch of weird recessions and, and sort of market chaos, either in a U.S. context or even just looking at it globally. I think that I'd start by studying the human behavior element. Ultimately, our economy is driven by a bunch of human beings making decisions. So what are the core things that are likely to be in place, let's call it for the next five years, right? 
So safety, security, and we've all recognized that our biology can be under attack in ways that are unpredictable and terrifying. And this is a first for most of the people alive today. Yeah. Um, certainly in certainly the 4 billion people who live in developed countries. Mm -hmm. For those who, uh, the 2 billion who've been living with diseases like malaria for their entire lives, this is like just another, another thing that's trying to kill them. But for most of, of the developed world, this is a new thing. And that's what drives our economies at the global level. So we're going to find a lot of people afraid on a curve, right, for all kinds of reasons. And just because we have a vaccine for this coronavirus doesn't mean some other thing's going to pop up. So right. there's going to be substantive changes. And I think that those behaviors, just dealing with the pandemic part, is, is driving new things. So, for example, commercial real estate is going to look radically different in the future. Giant swaths of the economy are going to say, you know what, we can work from home. There's no reason that we can't work from home. Now, there's huge parts that aren't, but for big sections of the service economy, probably a third of the workforce doesn't really need to work in, a, in an office environment. That's going to change commercial real estate. How does that change things? It could change travel in a really positive way because now more people are going to want to get together that work at the same company on a frequent basis. So maybe that helps the hotel and airline industry because more businesses are want to travel. I don't know. But the idea of working from home is going to be a central tenet. We've all demonstrated that we can still do business. I've had business relationships that have gotten created and closed in the last eight weeks where I've never met the person in, in, in person. I've met only over Zoom. And, yeah. and these are million, multi-million dollar contracts. So those are big opportunities where normally I would have gotten on a plane or I would have gotten in a car. I would sure. have gone someplace to see them. It's demonstrated that we don't always have to do that. So that's going to be a big shift. And it's going to not just affect the commercial real estate space, but it's going to change the way business gets conducted and what the expectations are around it. Those are going to be some big changes. I think when you look at... Um, last mile and door-to-door uh, -door service. We've now all got used to the idea of delivery. Why am I going someplace? Why don't I just have this stuff just show up on my front porch? That's going to have a huge effect on the gig economy, coupled with massive unemployment, where it's going to challenge people's assumptions about full-time work. And if you're an employer where you might have staffed up um, a large operation, let's say in a restaurant, we have servers, and you might say, you know what, I just need to be a kitchen now. Well, it's a very different staffing dynamic, yeah. much smaller staff, much higher volume. So there's going to be these edges where there are going to be different things that happen over the longer period, but some of them are going to be permanent in how we interact. And there's going to be a whole generation of, of the workforce that was already behaving differently, the Gen Zers who have just started to enter in in their 20s, they're going to start to view the world way differently based on this. And they were already using technology in an aggressive way to use to share videos and snaps and engage with each other in this way. And they were bringing those behaviors to work. One of the reasons Slack took off was because there was an expectation of, well, of course, that's how I work. That's how I live my social life. Why aren't I hyper-connected yeah. all the time in real time with everyone? Like, of course, that makes sense. So there'll be new emergent things that will come from those new behaviors. And, you know, things like 5G from a technology standpoint is going to accelerate even that. Because now if I can have essentially a broadband internet connection literally anywhere in America, then not only am I going to work from home, but I'm going to work from wherever I want to work from. Sure. So, you know, the idea of, hey, I'm going to rent a house in Southern California for the summer. And I'm just going to work from Southern California for the summer, right? 
I can I, I can go to the beach, I can do whatever I want. That's gonna change the game, right? And we're gonna see the, the last big one I'll talk about is I think higher education is in real trouble. The big colleges and universities are gonna figure it out, but the small ones are gonna to have to be transformed radically because it's gonna be very, very difficult to justify, you know an on-campus experience mm -hmm. when there's been enough demonstration that, wow, you can really teach pretty good courses with some of the best professors on earth um, over a Zoom connection. And I can learn a lot, especially undergrad, where, where you know, the first two years are kind of the same. Yeah. You know, there are differences in there. But at the end of the day, and what does that mean for the social experiences that young people need to have in order for them to mature? How does that change? Because yeah. maybe there are college campuses that are just campuses where people go to hang out with each other, but they take classes all over the world. So imagine an education yeah. facility that says, yeah, we're a campus where you live here, we've got exercise facilities, we've got sports teams, got us up, but you can take any course on earth. Yeah. That'll change the whole game. Well, now these college campuses are facility managers right. <laughs> and their education is really professors. So imagine professors no longer being tenured, but being actually having a hustle to have the best possible course on molecular biology on Earth. Right. And that's how they make their living. Holy shit, we'll get much, much better education potentially. Now, I just made up a bunch of stuff, <laughs> but those are all going to change it's in material ways. Like I said, fascinating. don't be making any business decisions based on what I just said. <laughs> no, and I know all that stuff is incredibly relevant here in eastern Iowa, but perhaps nothing more so than higher ed. We've got, you know, a tier one um, university in the University of Iowa Research University. We've got the state's largest community college in Kirkwood. We've got several smaller liberal arts colleges uh, up in Cedar Rapids and some surrounding communities. So that's that's something that I know is on the forefront of folks' mind here in Eastern Iowa. Scott, I could ask you 50 more questions and take up your entire day, but I know I know uh, time is of the essence here. I do have one one other one other question, general question, then we're going to dive into some of these rapid fire questions at the end. Um, I know on Entrefest you're going to be hosting a kind of ask Scott anything um, kind of little seminar period. But I also know you know talking to a bunch of people, and you mentioned it as well. There's a lot of founders, a lot of entrepreneurs out there. That are just kind of that you know that are struggling right now. They they get down. They're putting out a million fires each day. If you could, in sixty seconds, give give kind of an entrepreneurial uh, you know motivational speech, a little rah rah speech. I mean, just to kind of <laughs> you know bring the spirits up. You know, this is before kickoff with a football game kind of thing. Bring the spirits up. A motivational speech for for entrepreneurs. Look, I think the number one trait for successful entrepreneurs is actually resiliency. And those of us who have been at it for a while. We practice that resiliency literally every day because we're faced with all kinds of new information. We've got to make decisions against it. And we're inevitably going to make decisions that don't break our way. And that when things go our way, that's the easy. Those are our great days, right? There are actually very few, right? Most, most of the time we get, we get nice wins, but most of the time stuff doesn't cut the way we want it to. It doesn't, we don't get the outcomes we want. And so how we react to those outcomes is the most critical thing. So as an entrepreneur right now, we're faced with a massive tsunami of shit flowing at us, right? <laughs> New information, stuff we got to get rid of, stuff we got to keep, stuff that we need to adjust, stuff that we need to communicate to our teams about how we're going to adjust our strategies and make decisions against them. Those are all really, really hard. But what you've got to recognize is that you can overcome almost all of them. And if you believe that, that that's the case, you're, if you have enough self-assurance, that you're gonna get past it, then that's what practicing resiliency is about. You can be resilient in that moment. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't get into a place where I'm deeply depressed and miserable. 
it happens regularly, and it's happened a lot in the last eight weeks, more in, a, more in this eight-week period than I can remember in the rest of my life, because we're in an overall context, which is terrible. Yeah. Usually, it's just my company is a mess, but then I go say my wife, and she's like, yeah, the kids are finer than us. But guess what? I go and I talk to my kids, and they didn't get to go to college. They didn't have their last semester. They can't be with their friends. So we're all faced with things inside our business and outside our business that are challenging our resiliency every day. Approach it from that end state. And then the second thing, and this is so important, I attribute this to a guy named Ray Chambers, who is a fantastic entrepreneur and leader in his own right. He's currently like the grand poobah of the UN um, for, uh, for health uh, and, and well-being of children. I don't remember his actual title, but he's a, he's a UN um, ambassador. And, uh, and I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, he said, Scott, the most important thing you can practice is to become detached from the outcomes. Hmm. And it's really, really hard to do that. Yeah. But if you can think about it in that way, if you say, look, I don't control the outcomes. What I do is I'm going to bust my ass every day to try to influence the inputs on those. But at the end of the day, I, it's going to break whatever way it breaks. And so the combination of trying to become centered around, I don't control this outcome, yeah. coupled with I have the resiliency and the self-confidence that I can overcome whatever terrible outcome might occur. Those two things are things that you can practice now. And as entrepreneurs, we are like, in a lot of ways, second to scientists right now who are working on the actual pandemic solution. We are humanity's greatest uh, heroes. Yeah. We're it, right? The, the, the entrepreneurs are the ones that lead the path forward for humanity. And so that doesn't mean there aren't lots of other people that play key roles, but boy, we have an important responsibility to basically do our best to keep our shit together right. and figure out how to make sure that we, you know, get ourselves out of bed every day and get after it. And uh, if you've got any Rick and Morty fans out there, there's a fantastic bit where Morty is talking to his sister and a sister named Summer, and he goes on this whole riff about getting your shit together. Pack your shit up in a backpack and just get your shit together. And you, you won't be able to see it on the podcast, but my daughter made me a picture of it um, that she drew herself to talk about getting your shit together. And I keep it in my <laughs> office because it's a reminder to me that I got to get my shit together. <laughs> I like that. We all do. That, that's, that's awesome stuff. Thank you. Um, Okay, before we let you go, Scott, uh, we, we just we have a couple quick questions here. Give give all of us folks here in Eastern Iowa a chance to kind of get a, a different glimpse into 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 you you the person beyond just the the business side. Um, if, real quick, if you were to assign a percentage, how much of your success would you contribute to luck versus hard work? I think they're one and the same. So uh, I think hard work positions you to get lucky and to get outcomes that break your way when you put the effort in. So you can't have one without the other. Awesome. If given the chance, what profession, other than being an entrepreneur, and you've been in a variety of different industries, but if you could pick one one other specific profession, what would it be? Astronaut. That's that's very relevant. We got that. We got some new newfound astronauts coming here here soon as well too, which is also exciting. Uh, do you have a favorite business leader? Someone that that you've that you look up to currently, or someone that you're has been the most inspirational for you? Admiration for. Um... Uh, for the the founder of well, I guess the the, the current CEO of of LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, uh, I think that he has led LinkedIn in ways that are incredibly admirable. He's managed to keep the culture not only uh, moving forward when they went public, but.
but actually moving forward when they were acquired by Microsoft. And uh, I have a lot of respect for Jeff. Uh, he talk about somebody who operates at a Zen level. That dude is a remarkable guy. So if you haven't studied or listened to him speak or looked at what he does, um, if I could get just 10% of his abilities to lead with compassion, um, I would be significantly a better leader myself. So I, I, I work hard at that, uh, but he's a, he's a master of it. So he is the, he's a Jedi master of, of business leadership. So go study him. Uh, how about a TV show? TV show or movie, anything that you've seen recently that stands out? Well, I just mentioned Rick and Morty. It's one of my favorite uh, TV series. It's uh, it's stupid humor for smart people. Um, <laughs> so it's uh, if you like multidimensional science and uh, and and people with uh, interesting attitudes and views of the world, they go, go to Rick and Morty. We're we're certainly living in a golden golden age of podcasts. Is there one out there that? You know, if you could curate and sift through all the thousands or million of them that are out there, is there one that you'd recommend for folks that maybe they haven't heard of before? There's a couple. I think that um, uh, there's a new podcast called The Founder's Mind, which is uh, admittedly a shameless plug. We're a sponsor of it. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Reed Hoffman's uh, Masters of Scale. I think that it's a great way to learn from others. Uh, How I Built This is another one for entrepreneurs that is is quite strong. Um, there's a, a newish one um, from the Wondery Group called The Next Big Idea, hmm. uh, which is a, is a pretty powerful one as well. Um, I typically learn most from biographies, so I, I enjoy uh, the stories that are told by other entrepreneurs, and I tend to read a lot of biographies because that's the best way for me to learn is kind of through studying the behaviors of others. Do you have one, one or two biographies that jump out? One of my favorites is Theodore Rex, which is about Teddy Roosevelt, kind of in the window of him pre, pre-president to becoming president to just post-president. Hmm. And uh, uh, man, that guy, you know, if I could accomplish 10% of what he accomplished in his <laughs> lifetime, I'd feel fantastic about myself. Uh, it's, it's, he really accomplished a lot in a time that was, you know, like traveling around Africa wasn't exactly like, yeah, you hire some people, you get in a car. It's like, he had like, Right. Whole troops of people behind him to go places and do stuff, and um, you know he uh, he had a lot of traits for action that I really admire. Uh, there's a lot that people could criticize of him, but I found his biography Theodore Rex to be um, really valuable. That's great. Uh, two more questions here, quick. If you had 30 extra minutes in a day, what would you do with it? I would read more. Um, I, I really enjoy reading. And so I actually created 30 extra minutes in a day at the beginning of this year. I decided to get up a half an hour earlier. There you go. That's... Um, so instead of getting up at 530, I get up at five. Um, so I could buy that extra half an hour to read. Nice. So if I had to buy another half an hour, I'd just get up at 430. That's great. And then finally, in one sentence, how would you define success? I think living a life that you're proud of um, and, you know, that you engage in the things and with the really with the people that matter most to you in your life that you you create deep long-lasting relationships with them um you know financial success or uh, business success or notoriety or all those things they, they fade pretty quickly uh, but the long-term relationships you have with your family and your close friends are ones that uh, you need to invest in just like you invest in anything else and uh Ultimately, that's what I define success being, having deep, close relationships with the people I care about most. 
That's great. I'll tell you what, I'm pumped up just after talking to you for 45 minutes, Scott. And I really, really, truly appreciate you taking the time. I know on behalf of everyone here in, uh, in Eastern Iowa and, and as part of EntreFest, we're super excited to, to have you come on, albeit virtually, but we'll get you out here to, to Cedar Rapids, Iowa City area before too long. But really looking forward to June 4th and uh, you sharing more of your insight with, with all of us then. And, uh, and again, and thank you so much for all you do for the entrepreneurial community. and. Uh, across the United States in general. So thank you so much for taking the time and I'm ready to get back out there. Thank you. All right. Get after it, Nate. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. This episode was produced by Joe Coffee of Coffee Grande Studios. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CB Journal.